I think that the some of the unique aspects of this work were that we took techniques that are often used in evolutionary biology or statistics and kind of brought them to bear on the linguistic record. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Suranan is an English-based Creole language from the country of Suriname. That's from a popular Wikitongues YouTube video, Han Speaks Sranan. Today we're joined by Nicole Crianza from Vanderbilt University, who spoke with us about her research into the linguistic artifacts left behind in the language over 300 years ago by immigrants to the region. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to parsing science. Nicole attended Harvard for her undergrad, then earned her PhD in biological science at the Rockefeller University in New York City. After completing her postdoctoral work at Stanford University, she's now an assistant professor of biological sciences at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. To begin our conversation, we wanted to learn what got her interested in studying the evolution of learned behavior, including human languages, as well as bird songs. Throughout my academic trajectory, I've been really interested in the evolution of learning, things that are passed on, not genetically, but by cultural transmission or by um, the transfer of information from either parent to offspring or teacher to student or between peers. And so I think that genetics and cultural traits like languages or bird songs um, can tell us a lot about evolutionary history, but they always have a more complex set of dynamics because they can change very rapidly and be learned from non-parents and and thus kind of break the ties with with genetic trajectories. So I've been studying this in the context of both of bird songs and human behaviors and human languages. The Republic of Suriname is a small country bordered by the Atlantic Ocean and which is one of the three countries that make up the Guianas, a region in the northeast of South America. Owing to its history as a 17th century trading post while under Dutch colonial rule, Suriname is considered to be a culturally Caribbean country with its own Creole language. We were curious how Nicole got involved in research regarding the evolution of this unique language. The project that we're talking about today is is a fun and interesting one because it it seemed to all come together almost by happenstance that that I got involved, which is really wonderful. Um, It was actually a, a party for my advisor and one of his old colleagues came to this party and was talking about this really interesting work that his friends were doing in the West Indies, but that they were looking for someone to, to think about statistically what was happening. They had studied a Creole called Srinan, Srinan Tango, which is a Creole language that's, that's spoken in Suriname. It means Surinamese tongue. And it was formed when people from England came to Suriname as, as part of the colonial migration. And indentured servants came over from England. They brought slaves with them uh, from Africa. And then there were also colonial Dutch and Portuguese people involved in this colony. And so England 
sent over both a good number of indentured servants and also um, people in a higher social strata. But they they were there in the early 1600s and then in 1667 um, ceded the colony of Suriname to the Dutch. After that, all but about 30 or 40 of the English-speaking people left. So the Creole language that exists now is called an English lexifier Creole. And so most of the words in it come from English. As a Creole language, Suriname borrowed from the linguistic characteristics of those living in colonial Suriname at the time of its emergence. Its uniqueness may have well helped facilitate trade and communication among the diverse people who coalesced in the region. Since Creole languages are closely related to pidgin languages, Ryan and I asked Nicole what the difference is between the two. You know, the more we know about these things, the more we kind of learn about humans um, and how they how they learn language, how they transmit language, and how they learn language not only as children but as adults. So these things are you know, like all human behaviors, there's there's a lot of different perspectives and some people who are challenging some of those assumptions and, and the processes of creolization. But, you know, when I took a, a basic linguistics class, the distinction that was made from a pidgin and a creole is that a pidgin language is a simplified uh, form of language that the adults can use to communicate with each other. And then um, a creole language is a, is a language that is passed on to children and is learned as a first language and as a native language. And, and very, very often, I would say this happens in the context of subjugation of of one of the peoples involved. Um, so slavery, colonialism, that type of situation is is something that that often leads to creolization. When Creole languages form and evolve, characteristics of the contributing languages are either assimilated into or discarded from the new language. This made us wonder what linguistic theories exist for how this happens, as well as how those theories shape the aims of Nicole's study. So we studied this Creole language called Surnan uh, in Suriname to try to figure out if we could use the features of the modern Creole that exists today as some kind of indication of where the the people came from that formed the Creole. And so our first test case of this was to try to figure out where the English speakers came from in England that that formed um, the, the basis of the Creole when they when they arrived in Suriname. There had been a lot of theories about how different features of languages get integrated into Creoles. And so there was a hypothesis in Creole formation uh, studies that no matter how the people that were speaking English pronounced the words, that, that there would be some particular easiest pronunciation that would integrate into the Creole and be the most salient or that kind of no matter what the the spectrum of inputs were. So say people pronounced the R's at the end of words uh, sometimes and not other times, that the Creole should integrate kind of particular features among the dialects of English that were presented as inputs. And then the English that most people are familiar with, London style English or BBC English, it's been in England standardizing a little bit. And so there was a hypothesis that if lots of people came together from different parts of England, that their own dialects would take a backseat to to a dialect that they all were familiar with from that was kind of a London standardizing version of English. And there was another hypothesis that based on the frequency of different of different types of speakers or based on the processes of language formation themselves, there would be kind of a bias for what integrated into the Creole, which English words um, and the pronunciations therein integrated into the Creole might have something to do with linguistic processes and not with the people themselves and how they pronounce the words. And so we propose an alternative hypothesis that the ways that people pronounce words in English when they were forming the Creole, when they were speaking with the people from Africa or the, or the people from the Netherlands or Portugal, 
that the way that they pronounced their words would influence how the Creole sounded. And so we found as many words as we could where there was variety in English in how people pronounce the words, and that word had been integrated into Suriname. The people coming to Suriname differed in many ways. For the study, Nicole's team focused on immigrants from England and their contributions to the Creole. But even among the English-speaking migrants, diverse dialects were spoken, and these could be traced back to specific locations in Britain. Next, Nicole explains how the team was able to identify the various British dialects spoken, as well as where in England the speakers came from. Inputs from English kind of all took place in this brief period in the 16, from the 1620s, say, to the 1660s, um, and then most of the English-speaking people left. So it, it has certainly changed over time, but the source language, the influence from English, was kind of in a pulse hundreds of years ago. And so by studying this language, we were hoping to be able to say something about where did the people come from that, that helped form it. So where did the indentured servants come from? Or the people who left England that either were landowners or artisans or in kind of a, a higher social strata that left voluntarily and, and went to the colonies. Did they all come from similar places. And we thought that we might be able to use the features of the Creole to to act as kind of an archaeological record of of the migration from England to Suriname. And so one of the really important sources that we use is called the Survey of English Dialects. This series of books was published after a team of linguists and other folks that they had trained um, went to different locations within England and asked people questions. So they wanted to find people who had kind of old-fashioned or native dialects to these different localities. They found primarily people who were engaged in farming and who were on the older side, and they asked them questions like, what would you call something that you, you know, put on your horse so that you could ride it? Or what would you call the thing you sit on when you when you milk a cow? Like things like that. And so there's variety in both the pronunciation and the the precise words that people use to describe those things. And, and the idea was that those were less likely to be influenced by, you know, hearing things on the radio or even the TV by that point. To define the specific contributions of unique English dialects, the team had to analyze multiple pronunciations of the words in Srenan and define their association with the parallel characteristics among the numerous English dialects spoken at the time of Srenan's formation. We wondered how Nicole and the team went about this task. We found, and this part was really driven by Andre and Hubert, they found words in Surinam that had corresponding words in English where there was some variability in how people either pronounced or, or you know, use these words. And so we came up with 45 words for which the 313 different localities in England had different ways of pronouncing them. And the most common differences were in whether the people said the R at the end of words and whether people said the H at the beginning of words, but there were also different pronunciations of vowels and, and of Fs and, and things like that. And so then the thing that was really striking about the Creole is that in particular for the R, it contained both words where you pronounce the R at the end and words where they didn't pronounce the R at the end. So the Creole has words that imply that the English dialect spoken to them pronounce the R's at the end of words. And it also has other words that imply that the English dialect spoken at the time did not have the R's at the end of words. This is called roticity. And in America, it's associated with some sometimes the dialects of the South and also with things like Boston, like Park the Car and Harvard Yard is, is a non-rhotic way of saying Park the Car and Harvard Yard. And that the Creole had 
both rhotic and non-rhotic words from English implied that there that the processes that that people had previously been suggesting might have happened that for example that there was a standard version of English spoken or that there would be for whatever reason of linguistic processing would be a bias toward one type of pronunciation over another one and the fact that we saw multiple different ways of pronouncing similar words in similar settings implied that there might be different dialects that were integrated into the creole so then we assembled all the data from the different localities within england and we did a couple different um ways of assessing the similarity to the creole um, of those words. The intertwining of perspectives and methods among scientists from multiple disciplines can often produce compelling research that's capable of shifting the direction of inquiry for entire fields. We asked Nicole to talk with us about her contributions as a biologist to the team's study of language. From my perspective, and I don't want to speak for the linguists on the team, I think that the some of the unique aspects of this work were that we took techniques that are often used in evolutionary biology or statistics and kind of brought them to bear on the linguistic records. So a lot of the techniques that I used when I when I got the data and started to analyze it are things that people had used in population genetic studies. So these principal components analyses and Procrustes analysis are things that geneticists have used to deal with large-scale data. How do we reduce the dimensionality and then see how well it maps on to geography in this case? And so knowing having a background in those techniques, I think, enabled our collaboration to be really fruitful. And then Ewart Thomas is in the psychology department at Stanford. He's the one who initially made this link between myself and Hubert and Andre in the West Indies. And he comes from kind of a psychology and neuroscience background. And so some of the ways that he thought to look at the data were influenced by how you would figure out in the brain in an fMRI study which things were kind of enriched for signal. So you've got, say, people doing a task in an fMRI machine. You expect certain areas of the brain to light up, but maybe not exactly precisely the same ones, but there's kind of an enrichment for certain areas. And so thinking about the spatial dynamics of similarity between kind of high-dimensional things was something that Hubert and I had both thought about before, but in very different contexts. And so talking to Hubert and Andre about the language data they had collected and then talking all among ourselves about the different types of statistics that we would do if this was totally different types of data um, was really a fun and fascinating process for us. Studying the evolution of Cernan in the 17th century requires knowledge of how it and the English dialects of the time were spoken. There are, however, no recordings from the time, and both languages have continued to evolve. Recognizing these challenges, Nicole describes how they examined historical records to trace changes in the languages and dialects. We don't want to imply that we think that 20th century English and 17th century English would be the same, but we're kind of using both 20th century English and, and 20th century Cernan as kind of proxies to try to test this hypothesis. So one of the things we did, like I mentioned, was to try to go back to historical sources and, and see if things were pronounced the same way. And for English, we do have some senses of when the historical roticity at the end of words was was dropped and in which places, which regions of England. And so those are features that have that have certainly changed over time, particularly in their distribution around England. And so we, to the best of our ability, tried to go back and validate, was this location likely to be rhotic or non-rhotic when the people were leaving for Suriname? And so we have some hints in there about that. And it's right at the 
right at the early end of, of when non-rhotic dialects were spreading. So that's definitely something for us to keep in mind. And it's really, this is really interesting, I, th- I think, and I'm not an expert in it, but by going back to historical sources, you can try to get a sense of how people pronounce the words. So writing fiction, for example, if you're transcribing how someone is pronouncing things, there's people who can use that to estimate whether the R's were pronounced at the end of words or by rhyming, you know, looking at poetry and trying to see if, if a word is rhyming with something else with an R or with something that ends in a vowel. So there's different ways to try to get at, you know, historical patterns, but there are people who have, who have devoted a lot of time and effort and energy to trying to study how language changed over time. Mapping the contributions of English speakers' dialects to Srinan required substantial investigation and analysis. So Ryan and I were interested in learning about the methods that Nicole and her team used to make these connections. For each of the 313 places in England where the people had surveyed in the Survey of English Dialects, we had an estimate of the way certain words were pronounced that we looked up in those books, and we had a latitude and longitude of the locality that was being studied. So we had effectively geospatial language data. And so then we took the equivalent features in Srinan and looked at a couple different ways. We did kind of a basic similarity assessment, how many of the features are shared between Srinan and each of those 313 localities, where we just kind of said, how, what percent similarity do each of these places have to Srinan? And so there was the regions with highest similarity to the features in Srinan, the language features in Srinan, were right around Bristol. And so then we went back to the historical records, and this was something that was really cool for me. There's a book that exists that's called the Bristol Register of Indentured Servants. And so if you go to virtual Jamestown, you can look up the ship records that left with indentured servants from the port of Bristol for the English colonies in the Caribbean and then from the Caribbean to Suriname. And so we downloaded those records and looked at the places where people were from that had been, you know, enlisted as indentured servants and transported to the English colonies. So that was a really interesting thing because by looking at these boat records and kind of digging into where the people were from that had traveled to Bristol and become indentured servants, we had some estimate of the distribution of people that had left England for colonies. And we validated that those people were largely from around the Bristol area, which is where we found our best fit similarity dialects to to Srinan. And so the signal around Bristol indicates that many of the people talking to one another were indentured servants and, and enslaved Africans. In their research, Nicole and her colleagues tested several hypotheses. The first three were derived from traditional theories on the development of Creole languages. The fourth was their new explanation, which they dubbed the pan-dialectical hypothesis, which suggests that specific local and regional English dialects could each have contributed to the new Creole language. Here, Nicole discusses their findings. The hypothesis kind of hinges on the way that language is processed and remembered and produced by speakers of other languages. And so the ways that we tested the hypothesis were kind of the best that we could do with existing data, but we couldn't truly say, okay, this is the most salient feature of English for speakers of other languages, or this is the most, the easiest to pronounce way of saying this word. But what we tried to do was if, if those processes were happening, um, we wanted to hypothesize what the effects of them would be on English and then extrapolate from there. So for the pan-dialectical hypothesis, our thought process was if certain if certain ways of pronouncing things in English were 
very likely to spread, but that might then be also the most common variant over time in English as well. So we tried to break down into the most common features in the English dialects, either in all of England or in the places that were contributing people to the indentured servants that, that traveled. And that did not predict very well the features that were present in Srinan. And then we also tried to extrapolate from this standardization hypothesis that there was a, a standardizing London dialect that was starting to form at the time, and that that would have been what English speakers spoke to one another when they didn't speak the same dialect. And so we used the data that we had for London at the time uh, and from places around London. And that also didn't explain the features of Sernan very well. But then when we took kind of the most similar dialect that was very close to where the indentured servants were leaving, that did, you know, 50% better than those other hypotheses. Next, we asked Nicole how the methods of data collection and analysis used in her study, which dominate evolutionary biology and population genetics, but are less common in examinations of language and cultural evolution, might be applied in other studies of linguistics. The colonial history of England has made it so that there are samples of English spoken by independently evolving populations in, in numerous places around the world. So thinking about Australian English or Canadian or American, um, for example, we could think about, you know, are there geographic signals in different places around the world of, of English that's spoken? So does American English versus Canadian versus Australian, do those hold signals of the English that existed at the time that, that people settled those places? Or have they been influenced by, say, French in Canada? So trying to disentangle um, the historical evidence versus modern changes would be an interesting thing to do in not just other creoles, but also in in kind of English in different places. I also think that technique like this, you know, doing a, a proof of concept or proof of principle, when we do have relatively good ship records, boat records, we approximately know where people came from in England. And so we could validate our predictions in that in that way. But we can think of lots of contexts in which that history doesn't doesn't necessarily exist. So I think that would be really exciting. In addition to her investigations into the evolution of human languages, Nicole's research focuses on the learned behaviors of birds, and more specifically, the role of novelty in bird songs. We couldn't miss the opportunity to ask Nicole to tell us more about this research. So my line of work on birds actually started with trying to do some field work and, and making those early mistakes that you make when you do anything, but particular with something like field work. So I was trying to record a certain bird and you often record birds at, you know, 4.30 in the morning when the dawn chorus is happening. And so I, I'm a little bit of a night owl. And so it was 4.30 in the morning recordings. I loved doing it, but it didn't totally fit with my my circadian rhythm and so I was maybe not as sharp as I as I should have been but I was recording a closely related species of bird instead of the bird that I was aiming to record the birds I was trying to study in particular could learn throughout their lives and so they they were capable of of learning and singing a huge variety of sounds but these two species sounded to me to a relatively untrained ear to be pretty similar and so then I was thinking about the constraints on bird songs. So there's the learned aspect where they, if they're raised in isolation, they don't sing a normal song. But, you know, what else is happening with the songs that birds sing? So it could be, you know, the structure of their vocal organs or their body size. How much of a role did these things play? Um, and then how much of it was just learned? And, and even in the in the aspects of bird song that are learned, it could be that parts of the song change very quickly and, and let us see this 
amazing variability in bird songs, but there could also be parts of bird songs that change pretty slowly and might give birds some insight into what species they're listening to. So the thought process with sexual selection on bird song is that a female bird would choose a mate based on trying to figure out which of the males in the population has the best song. So it's maybe it's the most complicated or the best example of learning, you know, but some kind of virtuoso song should be the most attractive to a female. But if the female can't tell that a bird is the correct species, then she's not going to choose that male to mate with. So if the if the male is so extravagant and out there with his song that that he can't be recognized as the correct species, then he's he's not going to get a mate. And so there's this kind of tension in the selection pressures between being the best and being recognized as the correct species. Um, so there's kind of a boundary on that, perhaps, in terms of what the female is listening for. And so I thought that those two different selection pressures, one toward novelty and or learning and one toward kind of conservative species recognition, that those that the balance of those two might might lead to certain aspects of song changing very quickly and certain aspects of song changing more slowly and maybe being more informative on the species level. Noting that great minds can sometimes guess the truth before having either the evidence or arguments for it, each year the Edge Foundation poses a question to thought leaders in science and philosophy. In 2005, it posed the question, what do you believe is true, even though you cannot prove it? After receiving over 100 invited responses, the following year, they compiled those responses into the book, What We Believe But Cannot Prove. At the end of our conversation with Nicole, we asked for her thoughts on this question. Something that I think is is true is that the behaviors that we have, that humans have and that birds have and, and everything that we learn has a lot of different influences. It shows influences from our parents and from our surroundings, from our environments, and some things that are kind of inherent to us as individuals. And so that variation, kind of that our behaviors are kind of a combined amalgamation of our own personality and the context in which we were raised and, you know, kind of the larger environment that we were raised in and then kind of our choices since then. I think that that humans, but also every organism that learns, it has these interesting signals of their past and, and of their history and of their genetics. And so I think that I've been trying in different contexts to, to assess the extent that we can disentangle these things. But I think that it's it's very hard to prove, but I think that we're a product of so many different aspects of our upbringing and of our genetic makeup that I've been thinking a lot about how can we, how can we assess behaviors that each of us have and try to disentangle all these different influences that are certainly all important. That was Nicole Crianza discussing her article, Using Features of a Creole Language to Reconstruct Population History and Cultural Evolution, Tracing the English Origins of Sranan, published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. You'll find a link to her paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials she discussed during the show. Are you on Twitter? If so, you can follow us at Parsing Science, where we tweet the latest news in science but only about four or five times a day. So don't worry, we won't flood your stream. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by David Kernan of the Australian National University. He'll talk with us about his research into how analyzing Shakespeare's writings might help establish people's true identities through modern cybersecurity. There has been a whole lot of work that's been done on Shakespeare, especially in the identity space, because A lot of his work is considered to be his, but it's not. We hope that you will join us again.